When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. Today we're going to just preview two milestones on the baseball calendar, and that's the start of spring training and the start of the college baseball season, which will give us a little bit of an opportunity to discuss the uh, top prospects in this year's draft. So we're going to talk about that in a little while, but first, On the Verge is brought to you by Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in a beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So we're going to start off today's show with a spring training preview. Uh, Some of the players we're going to talk about might have a shot of making the 26-man roster out of camp. Others are players that we kind of feel like you should keep an eye on um, as spring training progresses because they could factor into the Orioles roster later in the year, and um, Nick actually made an appearance on another Baltimore Sports and Life radio show earlier this week, and that was Sports Tonight with uh, Chris Stoner, the owner of Baltimore Sports and Life, so give that a listen if you have the chance. Uh, Nick, did you and Chris discuss uh, spring training during that appearance? Yeah, we kind of talked about some of the young guys like Diaz, who we're excited to see. Um, just kind of went around the diamond looking at everybody, some of the battles taking place, uh, and the pitching staff, who we like. A lot of topics we touch on touch on this show, but it's it's exciting to know that to talk about it now with actually players reporting to camp and actually throwing. So, yeah, definitely check it out. It was a good show. Check out all of our podcasts over at Baltimore Sports and Life. A lot of good shows on Ravens and Maryland, Orioles, and Major League Baseball as a whole. Yeah, exactly. So be sure to check in on that. Uh, We're going to look now at the players that we're going to have our eyes on in camp. Uh, We each put together a list of two prospects that we want to discuss tonight. I'm going to start off with Bob, who has two names that um, were added to the 40-man roster this offseason. Yeah, um, the first guy on my list we've talked about quite a bit on here, so we don't have to go too deep into it, but it's Ryland Bannon. He'll be fighting for inside uh, infield position, either second or third base, most likely third base if he's going to make it, but or maybe even a bench roll. I think the most likely scenario is he ends up starting the year at AAA Norfolk and then gets called up at some point in a couple months down the line during the season. But just now that we're actually in camp, we know exactly who he's competing against. They brought in Jemai Jones. You got Yolmer Sanchez, obviously Rio Ruiz. Julio Urias, not Julio Urias, Ramon Urias. Um, uh, I don't know. I just feel like there there is a chance that he could make the team out of spring training, especially given injuries and COVID concerns. You never know if he impresses enough. What do you guys think? Do you think he could break camp with the team? 
I give Bannon an outside chance, but I think it's a little hard right now because you do have Yolmer Sanchez at second base, and the Orioles could look at Rio Ruiz or Pat Vileka at third. So I think at that point, if they're not certain they can get at bats for him, it's an easier call to put Bannon in AAA. And I think the really the two big questions there are going to be, you know, where do they put him defensively? Because I think that's going to tell us a little bit about how they plan to bring him along later in the season. And the other thing, too, is do we see the power come around a little bit at Norfolk? Um, as we've talked about a lot on this show, the Eastern League was not a good environment for power in 2019. So the hope maybe is that Bannon gets hits for a little bit more power at Norfolk. And if you have not listened to it yet, I would go urge you to go back to last week's show when this one is finished and hear Spencer Watkins talk about what a tough hitter Ryland Bannon is to face. And this is really backed up by some of the stats we see with Bannon. So one that I'm looking at now that strikes me is that in two full seasons um, of the minor leagues, so counting 2018 and 2019, Bannon's walk rate has been pretty consistent. Um including a 10% walk rate at Bowie in 2019. The year before that, he had a walk rate of nearly 15% in the California League uh, prior to coming over the Orioles organization, the Manny Machado trade. So we know this is a guy that's not going to give away at bats, um, probably going to draw a lot of walks, but we'll see if the power comes around. Yeah, I think that was well put. Uh, we have talked about Bannon a lot, but we're so high on him. I think we all really enjoy watching him play. We see the potential there. Even if some writers out there don't like Dan Connolly, uh, we'll call him out on that uh, since there's so many Ryland Bannons out there. But uh, like you said, I think Spencer Watkins uh, would disagree. And that's a guy who's been pitching in professional baseball for six, seven years. Uh, so uh, I like it kind of fueled my fire for Ryland Bannon a little bit when he said that immediately and dropped his head <laughs> in disbelief. Um, but yeah, I think clearly the Orioles want to see what Bannon can do. Uh, you saw a lot more hype, I think, recently. I came, I think it was Steve Molesky. Uh, someone over at Masson, I think, put it out. They talked more about the Orioles putting him in at catcher uh, during instructs or, or at the alternate site. I know we talked about that before, how it was just a little nugget in an MLB Trade Rumors article over the summer. But, you know, you never know with these taxi squads, if you know, hey, if you need an emergency catcher, you could add another pitcher to that taxi squad or or that frees up a taxi squad place if Bannon is on your active roster, uh, knowing that you know he's going to be your third guy. He is an emergency catcher, but you've got him there on the bench. So as to his versatility, I'm curious if he could play in the outfield too as well at some point. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, I'm excited to see what he can do. And you know, it's I, honestly, I just want to apologize to him for being so down on him when the Orioles first grabbed him because I, I wasn't a fan, but... Now I'm a big fan of Bannon. Excited to see what he can do out there in spring training. And can his defense really be much worse than Francisco or Pedro Severino? Mm, doubt it. <laughs> all, right, all right, cool. My uh, second guy is going to be a pitcher. One of the trio of left-handed pitchers. It's Alexander Wells. I just think it's – I kept thinking about who should I talk about on here, and it's curious to me that Mike Elias did finally decide to add him to the 40-man roster, and I feel like – he gave him kind of a shout out in an interview I was looking at. I can't remember where it was now um, about how he's been working and looking good in Australia. And it's kind of just like that great unknown. He's kind of curious how we didn't hear anything about him, see anything from him, obviously from last year. Who knows what he's working on? Maybe he can come in with a Tommy Malone type arsenal and grab that fifth spot in the rotation or grab a, a spot in the bullpen. Or at the very least, he can go down to AAA 
with an impressive spring and be kind of like that first or second guy up when they need someone to call up. I think he starts the year at AAA just because, and we'll probably talk more about this later with some of these other names, but there's so many pitchers in camp right now, and there's been a few more additions, like the Matt Harvey and Felix Hernandez, since we really talked about some of these younger prospects. So I just feel like guys like Wells get, are getting pushed back just a little bit more. Um, if it comes down to Wells, you know, and a decent Felix Hernandez, uh, who do you think Michael Ice is going to put in the rotation? I'd say it's probably going to be Felix Hernandez to at least start. But at least last night on Sports Tonight with, with Chris, we talked about kind of Adley Rutschman for a second. And where would Adley Rutschman begin? And so I'm thinking, you know, because the lower minor leagues aren't going to start till a month later, we maybe see Adley Rutschman start in AAA since they're going to start on time and he's going to be in big league camp. I don't know, but if that's the case, you know, we've talked about Norfolk's rotation before being so stacked, and I, I would love if Alex Wells could work with Adley Rutschman. Uh, if it's at Bowie, great, or in Norfolk, I, I would love to see them two work together just because, for my own personal sake, because like I've mentioned before, I'm kind of scared when it comes to Alex, Alex Wells, uh, just because... He hasn't pitched in so long. He was stuck in Australia. He didn't get to pitch in the Australian Baseball League. So it's been private workouts, which, you know, is still working out in front of Orioles coaches. But still, when, when your calling card is your command, it, it just scares me just a little bit. So I'm anxious to see what he can do as well. Uh, but, you know, how is 2020 layoff going to affect him? This is my big question. What if he pulls a John Means and shows up at camp throwing 93 miles an hour? Okay. Put him in. <laughs> I, I kind of agree with Nick. I think that Wells is more likely to start the year back in AAA just because of the amount of depth that the Orioles have added um, in recent weeks. And not to mention that I think that if there is a prospect who sneaks onto the roster somehow and kind of surprises us, it's going to be Bruce Zimmerman because he already has the major league time. Um, whereas, you know, Wells last pits in AA, hasn't pitched in over a year, and although. Everything we're hearing about his workouts in Australia from the Orioles has been positive. He still was not at Bowie. He still was not at Sarasota for instructs. So we don't have a clear picture of how he's really progressing. The big thing for me is just going to be making sure that we don't see that home run rate spike a lot with the move to Norfolk. We saw it come up when he went to Frederick. Then it went back down when he went to Bowie as the ground ball numbers went up. And this is a stat I've cited a few times as well. I really want to see him just get to Norfolk and do what he does best, which is limit hard contact get ground balls and I think if he's able to do that especially if they stretch him out a little bit we could see him in the major league sometime early to mid-summer uh even if it's on a spot start basis because I think that the Orioles like a lot of teams are going to be dealing with issues with pitchers this year and you're probably going to need to see more pitchers on the roster than normal yeah I did see Brandon Hyde mentioned that uh six-man Rotation is a possibility, but he also said pretty much anything's a possibility at this point. So there might be another spot for another guy to grab some some starts. Yeah, for sure. And Harbor Park, I, I just think Harbor Park is a great park for these pitchers like Wells to step in and get comfortable because that outfield is so big. It's nearly impossible to hit a home run to dead center. Uh, and you've got that wind coming off the Elizabeth River in right field. It's it's really hard to hit home runs there unless you're like Ryan Mountcastle who can hit opposite field shots. No problem. Uh, so I think it's it's going to be a good fit for him down at AAA, get his feet wet again and get comfortable again. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, but speaking of 
the the outfield out there in Norfolk and a guy who might be roaming it to start the year, uh, Ryan McKenna, another guy we talked about a lot. Uh, we just because we all want to see what he can do. Uh, I think a lot of others have probably moved on from McKenna. Uh, I think I mentioned in a previous episode that I I forget sometimes he's still there, uh, just because there's so many more talents uh, on the roster now, but. I think that narrative that he had a down year in 2019 isn't super accurate. We've talked about before. Um, he's got home run ability. It, the term elite is thrown around a lot pretty easily, but when you're talking about his speed, it truly is elite speed. Uh, so I'm excited to watch him take over control at center field at Harbor Park. Uh, but I think with McKenna, the reason I brought him up is I guess it's more of a conversation of do we think Cedric Mullins can keep that backup job as well? So maybe it's like a McKenna slash Mullins topic here. Um, and who do you guys like better? Who do you think has the higher upside? And maybe by the end of the year, who is hopefully a healthy Austin Hayes backup at this point? I do think that McKenna has the higher upside between him and Mullins. I, obviously, I think Mullins has the the step up right now after coming off a pretty strong 2020. But if all it's going to take is Mullins to get hurt or just collapse again like he did in 2019, and I think McKenna is going to be that, that guy who's going to be the backup outfielder, defensive replacement guy that can step in at center field on a whim. So I think McKenna has the higher ceiling. Mullins is already there and has the maybe higher floor, but I do we'll definitely see McKenna in Baltimore in the first half of the season, I believe. Yeah, Nick, it's in- interesting you kind of framed it this way because we – I feel like we've kind of forgotten about McKenna with all the outfielders that the Orioles have at the major league level and even some of the guys that are behind him in the system right now. But I think that of the two, McKenna does have the higher ceiling over Mullins. Um, The question really for me with Mullins is going to be what he did at the plate last year. Does that carry over? And he looks much better with the glove than he did over 2018 and 2019. So if those improvements sustain themselves... I think it's going to be tough for McKenna to get to the major leagues or at least get substantial playing time in the major leagues this year unless the bat really comes back, unless we start to see him making contact the way that he did in 2018. And, Nick, I know that's an issue you've pointed to several times, which is the swing change is trying to go more for power, which didn't work for him in 2019. And I'm curious to see if he corrects that in 2021. Yeah, I tried to look a little deeper, too, when I – I was going to talk about McKenna, and then I remembered Cedric Mullins being on the roster as well. And I tried to look at some of their splits, and like Cedric Mullins against left-handed pitching, because we know he's a switch hitter, against left-handed pitching across his big league career, he's got a 30% strikeout rate, uh, OPS of 439, and a WRC plus of 26. Uh, But then I thought maybe McKenna is like raking against righties, but actually McKenna struggled against righties. His OPS is about 100 points lower against righties and lefties, so uh, I, that angle I don't think worked out, but I think it's exciting to see, yeah, McKenna, that, that speed is elite, uh, and with these new extra, the starting the run at second base and extra innings rule coming back, I'd bet money that that's, uh, that sticks around longer as well. Um, I think McKenna has a shot. That adds his value to him, obviously, but and thinking we'll see about that, Thinking about that Baltimore Sun article that was talking about how the analytics and all the the KVEST studies and the stuff that they're going to try to do at the hitter side that they had already done with the pitching side uh, talked about how their method isn't about, you know, launch angle. It's about doing damage. And I feel like maybe Ryan McKenna can be one of the guys that really 
takes the most from that because I think if he hits the ball on a line and uses his speed, you could see a lot more doubles and triples in his future. Yeah, definitely. Um, some of the other guy I, I brought up, and I was excited to see his name on the, the camp roster. I think he's a reserve, technically. Uh, but Zach Muckenhern, uh, pitcher, and, and I know, Zach, you talked about this with Connor Newcomb on Locked on Orioles episode, but um, I've always had a guy, I guess you'd say, that I will defend every chance I get. Uh, and it's usually someone that casual fans probably have never heard of before, and Muckenhern kind of fits that bill. Uh, he's not a top prospect. Like 2019 and 2018, it was Christian Alvarado, was probably my favorite prospect in the Orioles system. Uh, but he's gone in Oakland now. But Muckenhern's another one of those guys who was uh, used to be a starter with the Orioles in the lower minor leagues. Wasn't working out. Now he's a reliever, 25-year-old lefty. Uh, 2019 of Bowie, pulling up his numbers here, he struck out about 30% of hitters he faced with a 47% ground ball rate and a 2.87 FIP in 53 innings. Uh, and I, I shouldn't, but I'm going to pull out winter ball stats uh, from Puerto Rico, and no one can stop me doing this. He struck out 20 in 12 innings, walked just three, and gave up one run. And I know winter ball stats mean absolutely nothing, but that's dominant. Um, I'm excited to see what he can do. Uh, maybe as a guy, like you mentioned, Zach, the Orioles going to need a lot of pitchers. We're going to see a ton of names uh, come up. And I think Muckenhern isn't one of those top prospect guys. He may not be someone as you know, as heralded maybe as like an Isaac Matson. So I think Muckenhern definitely gets an opportunity probably pretty early if he comes out hot in Norfolk to start the year. Yeah, I agree. You know, when I talked about him on Connor's show, I pointed out, you know, he's a little older for a prospect. But the conversion to the bullpen didn't start until 2018. And the results over 2018, 2019 have been positive. And I think that when you see a left-hander who strikes out batters at that rate, you have to think that they're close to the major leagues, especially when they're coming into the season at AAA. I, I think w with him, if he's able to maintain those strikeout numbers and cut down the walks a little bit, he's probably going to be in line for a bullpen job sometime in July or August, if not sooner. Because the Orioles are going to work through pitchers. And I also suspect, and this is something we'll probably get into on another show, that you know this could be another season where we see the Orioles move from the bullpen at the trade deadline. So at that rate, if you do have a couple openings, Muckenhern's got to be a guy that the Orioles look at. So I, I, if Muckenhern were right-handed, I might feel like the path for him to get to the majors was a little harder. But if he's, you know, as a left-hander, I, I think it could be easy for him to find a role there at some point during the season. Yeah, he's definitely a guy that I've enjoyed keeping track of his stats uh, the past few years uh, prior to 2020. Definitely coming along, puts up good numbers, and he's a guy I feel like at the very least this year could be a great time for him to set himself up to make the 2022 bullpen out of spring training. But like you said, all it's going to take is maybe a Paul Fry getting traded at the deadline. Who knows who else, even, God forbid, Tanner Scott, you know, but he could be that lefty that we could bring up to the bullpen that strikes out a bunch of guys. Unheralded name, and I'm sure nobody, almost nobody listening to this knows who he is, but I think you will definitely know his name by the end of the season. I was going to say, I, I noted the Paul Fry trade as well. Muckenhern gets the job when Paul Fry gets traded to the Rockies for Herman Marquez uh, because the Rockies have no clue what they're doing and Michael Elias is a trade guy. Market. Will the Rockies be in uh, third, fourth, or fifth when they complete that trade? 
Oh, they're going to be 0. in 0.1% and... <laughs> chance for first. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so we're going to, I'm going to talk about the players that I'm interested to follow in camp. And these are two names that we've discussed a lot in recent weeks, but I thought it was worth revisiting their cases um, in more specific detail in this episode. The first one is Jamai Jones, the player that the Orioles acquired from the Angels in the trade for Alex Cobb. Um, Jones, for me, what, I, what I'm really interested in following is that I don't know that I see him making the major league roster out of camp. I just think that there's too many players in front of him. But the two things I'm going to follow are, first of all, what does his swing look like? Because we know that he's been a guy that has reportedly tinkered with his swing a lot throughout his career. But whatever he was doing at the alternate site last year with the Angels was apparently working because he was uh, hitting well there. Then went up to the major leagues and had good numbers over a very small sample size. Um, so what does the swing look like? And then the other thing is, how are the Orioles using him? Do we see him strictly at second base, or do we see them move him between second base and the outfield? Which, to me, would mean that they're thinking about bringing him up um, as a utility player, which means he probably gets to the majors a little bit faster. And if he does hit once he arrives in Baltimore, could settle in. Uh, with semi-regular or regular playing time at second base or left field, uh, depending on where the Orioles need help. But for those reasons, I'm going to follow Jones, even though I don't think he's going to make the opening day roster. Yeah, do I think he's going to make the opening day roster? Probably not, but could I see a scenario where that happens? Yeah, I could. I could see Yomer Yomer Sanchez, you know, looking kind of done because he didn't exactly light the world on fire the past season or two, and maybe they think, keep Jemai Jones as a utility guy who can kind of share time with Sanchez at second base, back up in the outfield, play that role, but most likely not, but he can go down to AAA and maybe show out and come up before too long. Yeah. I imagine Jones being kind of like the the Stevie Wilkerson type, Uh, maybe the utility type guy that can play the outfield. He can play multiple infield positions like you said, even does Rio Ruiz stick around? I have this scenario if Rio Ruiz bombs out and the Orioles finally move on, but Yolmer Sanchez is hitting for whatever reason, um, then you know do they move him over to third base? Jemiah Jones takes over second base. Or I think the more likely scenario is Yolmer Sanchez just doesn't hit. And if you're hitting you know, 100, uh, no matter how good the gold glove is, you don't want to keep him around. So that's going to leave Jones with an opportunity. And he's really next man up, I think, just because it, are the Orioles ever going to give Mason McCoy an opportunity? It doesn't seem like it. Uh, we all love Vavra. Vavra's been getting more and more hype, which is awesome to see. But uh, he's probably going to need more time, obviously. And then the younger guys, your Westbergs, Gunnar Hendersons, are, are years away. So it's Jones is up next. And so, yeah, I don't think he makes the roster either. But he's right there. He's one phone call away. The next guy I want to focus on is someone who, as I mentioned earlier, we've talked about, and that's Max Roller, the Rule 5 pick from the Red System. Whenever we've talked about the two players that were chosen by the Orioles in the Major League phase of the Rule 5 draft, uh, Soroller and then Tyler Wells, another right-hander, we've always gone with Wells as kind of being the higher ceiling guy, but that has more of a question mark coming off of an injury. So Roller in 2019 was actually pretty healthy and productive um, at high A Daytona, make, pitching 117 innings with a 3.69 ERA, 127 strikeouts in that stretch with only 29 walks. 
So we know the command uh, from based on scouting reports we've heard since the Orioles have drafted him. It's pretty good. The mix of pitches is good. He doesn't have that high upside velocity where he's going to constantly throw in the mid-90s. But this still feels like a guy that maybe sneaks his way onto the roster and we could see stretched out to be a multi-inning reliever or a spot starter later in the year. But again, then this is big question on my mind going into camp is what are the Orioles going to do with two Rule 5 guys with the amount of pitching depth that they have, even if that depth overall is a little suspect. So Soroller, I mainly just want to see, can he pitch his way onto the roster? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Nick. I, I was going to say, I, I personally, I, I think his chances have diminished a little bit just because, like I mentioned, the Felix Hernandez and Matt Harvey coming in, uh, Eshelman is back, and... There were plenty of other names at the Eshelman level that the Orioles could have brought in, but they decided to bring him back, I think, for a reason. Uh, they they want to see Jorge Lopez pitch, for sure. Um, and, and so I, I just think they even brought Wade LeBlanc. I forgot about this until this morning, actually, that Wade LeBlanc is back, and I got mad. Uh, but So obviously he's going to stick around. So I think you've got your seven, eight guys who are going to compete. Uh, maybe there's just another spot open in the bullpen, uh, but... Again, I just don't know. I mean, he only pitched at high A, so we'll have to see. But I, I, I want to see Tyler Wells, to be totally honest. But we haven't seen Max Roller pitch. We haven't seen either guy pitch. We're just going off really size and and Twins fans' excitement with Tyler Wells. But you know, Soroller's got got the Ben McDonald bloodline, so maybe there's something there. Maybe this is going off of not enough information, but based on last year, I feel like. Elias and company are going to make a pretty quick decision on whether they think these Rule 5 guys are going to cut it or not. And if not, they're going to send them back and leave enough competition for the other guys fighting for the spot. But, God, I really hope both of these guys make it, if only because I'm going to be really mad if we lost Zach Pop, only to take a flyer on someone and send them back after two weeks. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with you, Bob. I don't know what to expect, but my feeling is that if the Orioles are going to move on for one or both of these guys, they're going to make that decision pretty early in camp, especially if they want to give you know, Felix Hernandez, Matt Harvey, or even players they're more familiar with, like Tom Esselman and Wade LeBlanc, a longer look. Yeah, they're veteran guys, and they don't cost a lot of money. So, I mean, you're talking about... it's it's. I don't hate the signings. I love the Felix Hernandez signings. And the Matt Harvey signing, I've never understood all the hoopla around Matt Harvey, but I understand he's had, he's a veteran. He's had some outstanding performances many years ago, but even if they're just league average pitchers and they both are on the active roster, we know the Orioles aren't trying to win, and you've got two guys who are going to eat innings this year for less than $2 million. Uh, so, yeah, but I think it's nice to see those guys come in, but it also kind of stinks because younger guys like Sorolla, I think, are going to be the first ones out. So we're going to move now from discussing about veteran players at the major league level and how they compare to some of the younger players to players that are not even professionals yet. And with uh, college baseball getting underway this weekend, we're going to take a minute to really start our draft coverage for 2021. Um, The draft, a quick recap for those who may have missed the news over the offseason. The Orioles will be picking fifth in this year's draft, which will take place over the All-Star break in Atlanta in July. So it's going to be happening a little more than a month later than it traditionally has in the past. Um, And this year, 
a lot of interesting players at the college level projected to go in that 5 to 10 range. Now, this show is focusing more narrowly on college players, so you're not going to hear about some high school players we're going to discuss on future shows. So Jordan Lawler, Marcelo Mayo, and Brady House are some of the names that you could hear about later on. But for now, we're just going to focus on college players. And we'll start off with a player that none of us put down as someone we want to discuss in depth tonight. And that's Kumar Rocker. And I think you guys are on the same page with me here. Rocker, who's the favorite to go number one overall coming into this draft uh, out of Vanderbilt, probably won't be there when the Orioles uh, pick comes up at number five. Yeah, the only way I could see it is if, like, he had an injury or just had a really, really disappointing season. But if if there if there's going to be a big right-handed pitcher there, I think it might be Jaden Hill out of UCLA. Is it? But uh, yeah. Yeah, Rocker's a tank. I mean, six five, two hundred fifty pound, just mammoth of a tank. Uh, and I would love to see him. Pitch for the Orioles, but yeah, something's going to have to drastically go wrong, which, knock on wood, we hope does not happen because he's a true special talent. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch him pitch at Vanderbilt this year. Uh, and so, But it was fun watching the Orioles win last year, to be totally honest. And because of the blanket eligibility that all spring athletes got in the NCAA last year, uh, the draft getting cut to five rounds, I mean, these college rosters are just stacked and absolutely loaded, and so many guys returned. Uh, and so the draft is, is going to be especially deep, deep with pitching. Uh, I'm excited to have maybe we can get Stephen Loftus on again to explain just how deep this goes. Uh, but yeah, Rocker clearly won one. But wish him all the best, but it won't be in Baltimore. Yeah, you know there are a lot of times that the I don't understand the line of decision making coming from the Pittsburgh Pirates, who has the number one overall pick. But something tells me that if Rocker dominates at Vanderbilt this year, they're not going to pass him up. And even if they don't. Um, the teams to pick between the Pirates and the Orioles are the Rangers, Tigers, and Red Sox, um, who all have shown in the past that they're willing to spend when the time is right, and I'd have to think that they would be willing to put out the big bonus to get Kumar Rocker if he slips from number one. But there is another prospect at Vanderbilt that could drop to number five, who, if not for Rocker, might be regarded as the top uh, college pitcher in the draft, and I'm going to let Nick talk about him a little bit. Yeah, Jack Leiter. Uh, I mean, he's number two in Vanderbilt. You've got a guy who I think some scouts believe could be, if he shows the right kind of stuff this year, uh, that he could be the number one overall pick in the draft next year. And he's your number two pitcher in the rotation for Vanderbilt. Um, You haven't seen a whole lot of him. He's only pitched 15 innings as a freshman uh, back in 2020. Uh, so, but he struck out 22 hitters, gave up just three runs on five hits. Uh, You look at some of his numbers though, and he doesn't have the high velocity. reports I've seen were 91, 92. Uh, He doesn't have those elite spin rates either when you can get some of the the data out there on these college guys. He doesn't have that, but he's got control. He's got movement. Uh, He has three pitches that evaluators put as future plus offerings. Uh, But he's interesting also because he's not very tall. I've seen Michael Esquire for those tall pitchers recently, but he's barely six feet. I think he's listed at six feet, and that may be generous. and so he's a shorter guy, not high velo, not high spin rates. So why are we talking about him? Because he's really freaking good um, still. And I have seen a recent report that said in fall he was throwing 96, 97. Uh, so maybe that's that's a sign. Uh, Baseball America has a couple really good pieces out there that you, if you have a subscription, of course. But um, uh, 
they give Jack Ladder the highest rated breaking ball in the draft, one of the top changeups, and the second best command among all the pitching prospects in the draft. So, and he's also their second on their list for draft prospects closest to the major leagues. So, uh, this is going to be his full year debut. Uh, I'm excited to see him go, see if he can challenge Rocker for one one. I think that's going to be the debate all year. And luckily for us, uh, SEC games and variable games are always on ESPN Plus. So if you have access to that, you can watch a lot of Jack Leiter this year. Or just follow us on Twitter because I'll put out all the highlights. Yeah, Leiter. I mean, I think if the Orioles are going to take a pitcher and he's there, it's going to be him just because he's pretty much as seasoned as you're going to be for someone his age. His father, obviously, Al Leiter, probably grew up in a clubhouse. I mean, he's got a complete repertoire of pitches that are all at least average. I feel like he's pretty much the complete package. The only thing that might be the downside is his size because we know Elias likes his his big guys. But, I mean, he's everything you want in a college pitcher. All he needs to do now is show a little bit more sustained success at that level to prove that he can get SEC hitters out because I don't believe any of his starts last year were against SEC. So we'll see how he does, but he's definitely up there. Yeah, Leiter is definitely up there, and I think that the sort of lack of experience so far at the college level might be one reason why he's not uh, pushing Rocker between that, and I think just Rocker's size, the overall ability, just screams ace. Um, whereas Leiter doesn't quite, you know, doesn't quite hit you that way at first glance. But this is someone who's, a, you know, I think for his age, a pretty polished pitcher, and could conceivably move up the boards a little bit, especially with a strong year of Vanderbilt. Um, as Nick said, though, I do wonder with the spin rate and the velocity not really being elite, at least based off the data we have from the past, if that's someone Michael Elias would look at or if he's going to be tempted to go with his uh, usual strategy so far, which is to get the biggest power hitter he can find. Yeah, which, honestly, in doing some more research preparing for this show and college baseball in general, Actually, the top power hitter in this year's draft, I believe, is uh, debatable. It could be a guy we're going to talk about later on, but it could also be a, a catcher, Adrian Del Castillo from Miami. And I honestly, if Michael Elias wants to draft a catcher in the first round, uh, like Del Castillo, I'm here for it just to see Orioles fans' reactions, even though re- after reading a lot about him, he's not going to be a catcher long-term. But 5'11 guy who hits bombs, so we'll see with lighter. But <laughs> Pitching is going to be tough, too, because we know Elias, only he took Carter Baumler last year. It's one pick out of five rounds, and it was in the fifth round. And in his first draft, he didn't take a pitch until the eighth round. So we'll see if he takes a pitcher or not, but it doesn't seem likely. Yeah, sounds like Del Castillo is more of a great hitter who happens to sit behind home plate. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly not a name I'd rule out, especially if the Orioles do think they can move him left-handed power bat. Um Maybe if you move him to another position, he gets to the major leagues quickly, and you have him and Rutzman in the lineup down the line. But that'll be interesting to see. So I have a college hitter that I wanted to discuss tonight, and that's uh, Judd Fabian, the center fielder at University of Florida. And this is a guy who I admit is kind of a little bit of a helium, uh, where he could really either rise up the board or come down uh, if he doesn't have the season that many are hoping he will have. But most reports you read about him are that he's got some raw power that he could tap into over the next couple of years, especially because of his bat speed, Um, and that his speed is not really his calling card as a tool, but that his overall instincts are still good enough to stick in center field. One thing that's interesting is that Fabian has uh, kind of a different profile in that he's a right-handed hitter who throws left-handed, 
which sometimes you hear about prospects that that limits them a little bit because, you know, if Fabian would have to move off of center field, it would be corner or first base. That's really all he'd be able to play. But most reports that you see on Fabian agree that he can stick in center field. So I think that if he goes, you know, if he has a good spring at the plate and we see that power come around a little bit, this is someone that would really have to be, in my mind, the favorite for the Orioles to draft if he's still available at number five for a couple of reasons. First off, it fits that Michael Elias template of a college hitter at an SEC program, and a very good one at that, who's going to fill in at a premium position up the middle. And another thing, and this is really more of a convenient fact than I think it is a reason the Orioles should draft him, but it's something worth noting. The center field position, when you get beyond the major league level and you look at the whole farm system, it's Ryan McKenna and Hudson Haskin. And Haskin, we still have a lot of questions about. McKenna, we talked about earlier, uh, some of the questions surrounding his bat. So in other words, you don't really have a pure center fielder you can look at right now and say with absolute certainty, Two or three years down the line, this guy's going to be patrolling center field at Cannon Yards. Fabian, though, could be that guy. So he kind of fits the mold of the prospect Michael Elias likes, but then at the same time fills what I think is going to be a pretty clear organizational need, what is one now and probably will still be one in July. So that's why I'm interested in following Fabian this spring. Yeah, to me it sounds like he has all the tools to be even higher than fifth pick overall. I mean, he just has to put it all together. Seems like he's got that raw power. See if he can get into games. He can stick in center field, even though he's not lightning quick. Kind of reminds me of Adam Jones. He was never super fast, but he he was able to to get the job done there. And really, I think it's going to be a matter of, is the hit tool going to be enough to really carry the day? And uh, yeah, he, SEC player up the middle of the field. That's That spells Orioles. For sure. I mean, this and in a lot of early mocks, and they're very early, early mocks. I mean, really, it's just kind of them guys like Baseball America ranking their their top guys in these mock drafts because we have no clue uh, what college baseball world is going to look like. We've already seen injuries and cancellations, and college baseball is already a, a mess right now, and it's going to continue to be just because of outside factors. But with Fabian, he's only going to be 20 on draft day, so he's going to be one of the youngest college guys available in the draft. Um, he was his freshman year. He was 18 years old. Uh, he actually graduated high school early, uh, stepped on the campus. And so while all of his classmates are still sitting, falling asleep in high school classes, I used to be a high school teacher. I know they were sleeping in class, uh, that he was out there playing against sec pitchers that were 2.8 years older than he was. And he didn't hit very well. It was a 232 average, but he had a 353 on base percentage with seven home runs. Uh, he went to the Cape Cod league and destroyed Cape Cod League pitching, and he was the youngest player on the Cape that year. So this is definitely a guy who who's not afraid of more advanced uh, pitching, for sure. Um, he was hot before the shutdown. He had uh, was this, five home runs and 13 walks in 17 games before the shutdown last year. So, And there's already videos circulating of him hitting like 110-mile-an-hour home runs. So he's a young kid uh, that I think the Orioles can mold and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of weaknesses in his games. Like there's not that huge standout tool, like that 70 grade tool that you can point to, but he's like 50, 55 across the board uh, based on everything I've seen. So, and like you said, he is the prototypical Michaelis pick. So if he's available, I'd have to imagine the Orioles go with him as long as he can hit, hit for a higher average this year. Yeah, I think that's going to be key is just seeing what he does. And for a player as young as he was to rake in the Cape Cod League, I think he's going to stand out in the minds of a lot of teams. 
Um, so I'm really curious to see what Fabian does this spring at Florida. Bob uh, has two names for us, and one is one that you have probably heard a lot about as a consensus top four, top five prospect uh, in college baseball this spring. And then another one is a guy that's a little bit lower on the board, but still someone that could fall in the 10 to 15 range of the draft, maybe even higher depending on how he hits. Yeah, first off, just wanted to mention Matt McLean out of UCLA, shortstop, best hit tool in the draft from all accounts, and has some sneaky gap-to-gap power. Kind of brought to mind of maybe the next Brian Roberts for the Orioles if they happen to take him. Someone that could play shortstop, could stick at shortstop, or he could move to second base if there's already someone established there, like a Jordan Westberg or Gunnar Henderson. So that would be pretty easy for the Orioles to do. Um I don't know if you guys want to talk about him before I go into the other guy. Yeah, I mean, I've said before that the Orioles have only had the fifth pick twice before in franchise history, and it was Matt Hopgood and Matt Wieters. So Matt McClain is the pick. Uh, It just has to be. Uh, But no, he's a really great player. Um, I think something interesting that I found about him, he he was already a first-round draft pick. The Diamondbacks took him in the first round at a high school, but he didn't sign. Um, He's ranked Baseball America, gives him – ranks him only behind Rocker and Leiter as closest to the majors uh, this year among draft prospects. They give him the top infield arm and top hit tool in the draft. Uh, So he's a shortstop, but he didn't get to play the position as a freshman. He was pushed out into the outfield, and he really struggled as a freshman. His numbers were not that great. They were pretty poor, but he's learning a new position, adjusting to the college game. He went to the Cape Cod League as well right after his freshman year, played shortstop, and was dominant there. So Settled back in at shortstop at UCLA last year before the shutdown was hot. I think it was maybe just all those factors coming together his freshman year, but um, at least he's versatile. He added more to his toolbox there. So if, if the Orioles do take a Matt McClain, we already know he can play third, he can play short, he can play second, and he can play the outfield. So, and we know versatility is another one of those traits that Michael Elias loves. So. Yeah, I, I was looking at McClain's report MLB Pipeline. They give very high marks. They put his arm as a 60 the defense, it seems like he still has some room to develop, but that he can stick at shortstop. Um, I think this is a guy who's a really fundamentally sound player and someone who could move through the minor leagues quickly uh, with whatever organization drafts him. The big question that I have, though, and this is where I kind of pause when I think about him possibly as an Oriole, is how much power projection is there? Um, I don't see much coming from a college guy that's listed at... Let me see what it is, 5'10", 175 pounds. So I don't know if that's going to deter Mike Elias because we have seen Mike Elias go with power before, or does he just look at the overall skill set and figure out drafting Matt McClain, who I know can play shortstop in the major leagues and who I know can get to the major leagues quickly and will have a good overall hit tool but not much power, will allow me to move around Gunnar, Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westberg. So that's the one thing that... I would have to think that if the Orioles do draft him, it's for that flexibility. As Nick said, the Orioles like versatility. McLean brings that to the table, but then it also allows you the flexibility to move Westberg and Henderson uh, relatively soon if you decide that's best for them. Absolutely. Yeah, and I saw a Nick Madrigal comp to him as well. So, again, a guy with not much power but can clearly hit and never strike out. So not not a bad guy to have in your infield. But uh, my other player is another one who I wouldn't mind having in our infield. It's a third baseman out of Louisville, Alex Benelis. And 
this is a guy who raked in college as a freshman and then broke his hammock bone early on in 2020. I think he only had like five plate appearances. But this is a big power bat who can play third base, maybe move to a corner outfield spot. And once again, you know, Mike Elias loves his power bats. This is clearly one. And if if he hit that well, look, if you look back at Adley Rushman, his freshman year, his numbers were not very good at all. So if this guy was already mashing at that age, then he might come out and just demolish college baseball this year and win the most valuable, I don't even know what they call it, but MVP of college baseball. and. Who knows, might just his stock might fly high. And this is a guy I just I want to watch him this year and see how he develops. Even if he is not quite good enough to be the fifth overall pick, this is a guy I'm keeping an eye on. You know, the handmade bone can be a tough injury to come back from, so I do want to see how Benellis looks at the plate. But I think that this is definitely a guy, if you want to look further down mock drafts and find a sleeper and someone who could rise up the board with his performance and who could be a good fit with the Orioles, Benellis is someone that I would absolutely look at because we know that if he's healthy and his swing is back, the power is going to be there. And some of the reports I read on him seem to suggest that, unlike the questions surrounding Heston Kerstad going into the 2020 season, it seems like Benellis, the sense is that he has a decent judgment in the strike zone, so you might not have to worry about him being a three true outcomes guy. The overall hit tool might be there for him. The question for me is if he moves off of third base, where does he go? Most uh, reports that I read suggest that the arm is good enough for a corner outfield spot, which for me makes him an even more interesting prospect. But I, I think this is certainly somebody who doesn't necessarily stand out right now as a top five pick, but that if he is healthy, could hit his way into that conversation. Yeah, I'm just glad you put his name down on our list because I hadn't really focused on him a whole lot, and uh, which is surprising because for whatever reason I'm a huge fan of like Louisville athletics. I've never been there, have no connection to it. Maybe it was a Lamar Jackson connection when he was there, but um, I love Louisville baseball players. Uh, you've seen the Twitter account, and every time the Orioles and Angels make a trade, their weekly trade, I'm hoping it's Reed Detmers, and it never is. But Benellis is a is a guy. He's a dude. Um, top power tool in the draft. The freshman numbers, I guess he does have great walk numbers, like you mentioned. I didn't jot them down, but I just wrote they're great, uh, so they must be really good. But he hit 14 home runs, 14 doubles, and five triples. Uh, a 994 OPS as a 19-year-old uh, with Louisville, one of the top programs in the country in college baseball. Um, the, the swing from the left side, watching videos on him, it's really short, and it's just rockets out into to right field. And I did find some data on him uh, in the depths of the interwebs, but uh, it's uh, da, 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 what is it? so the average exit velocity as a freshman was 95 miles an hour, which ranks in the 97th percentile among college hitters, not just college freshmen, but all college hitters. So if you love those exit velocity numbers, he's a masher uh, and he's a left-handed hitter. So bring him on to Camden Yards for sure. Yeah. And even if he is projected to be around 10th overall, I mean, look what the Orioles did with Kerstad last year, so you might see him stretch a little bit, save a couple of dollars, and use it down the down the line in the draft again. Yep. So that's a look at the early part of the college baseball season, which gets underway this weekend. And if you follow us on Twitter at BSL and the Birds, you know that watching college baseball games is apparently how Nick is planning to spend his Friday, right, Nick? Yeah, I mean that's. All I've got. I'm, I'm mad watching the cancellations roll in, but I mean, you've got Vanderbilt is on there. Vanderbilt plays. 
they're going up against Wright State. So if you want to see Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter just annihilate kids, uh, they're coming on Friday night. And uh, Miami and University of Florida square off Friday afternoon, I believe. So you get a good look at Judd Fabian and Adrian Del Castillo, possibly the future catcher of the Orioles uh, in th- in that matchup. So a lot of good matchups. Follow us on the Twitter account, and I'll put out all the highlights I possibly can because baseball's back. And I will say for any listeners that happen to be in the Baltimore area with the uh, weather not looking particularly good over Thursday and Friday, what better use of your time than to uh, stay inside and check out some college baseball? So uh, Nick will have us over at BSL on the Verge with the latest coverage. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new show, which may or may not deal in predictions. We're going to have to figure that out. But I do want to throw this out to end the show because we didn't talk about him a lot uh, this episode. Yes or no, does Matt Harvey make the opening day roster? I'll start with Bob. Yeah, I think those three days at that sports complex are going to pay off, and he will be the Orioles' sixth starter. Yeah, I think going with the six, this news of the six-man rotation, I think definitely helps. Uh, and, you know, to be totally honest, do I think he will? I think no. But uh, my heart says, yeah, he should make the roster. Why not give us Felix Hernandez and Matt Harvey? Because you're not going to watch Wade LeBlanc pitch. I'm not watching the Orioles game that night. I'm not watching Tom Eshelman pitch. Look, I, I, he's great. He, sure, he does things that I could never do in my lifetime, but I'm not watching him. I'm not particularly going to sit down and watch Jorge Lopez pitch, but I will watch Felix Hernandez, even if he gives up 10 runs in the first inning, because it's Felix Hernandez in an Orioles uniform. So, yeah, Matt Harvey makes the team. Um, I'm going to guess for right now, no, just because I don't know what he's going to have in the tank, and I feel like as Nick Menson, Jorge Lopez, and Tom Eshelman being back, um, I have to give the leg up to them, but I will say that it would be much more interesting if Harvey started the year in the rotation with Felix Hernandez. Orioles fans could really party like it's 2015. Um, So that does it for this week's show. Um, You've been listening to On the Verge. Be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for the latest stories on the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps. Follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge. And for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. Thank you for listening.